Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 20th of August. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party Executive Member Jeremy Beck. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Robbie. In this week's Citizens Report, Australia's real economy is running out of time. And we're going to talk about the severe crisis in skilled labour, in the shortage of skilled labour in Australia, which is what really makes the economy work. And second, IPCC corruption. Hype the problem, deny the solution. And we're going to discuss what should be a scandal, which is this massive new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predicting the end of the world, but then saying nothing about a viable energy solution that is emissions-free nuclear power. Um, and then and we're going to discuss the breakthroughs on thorium, which is um, pretty exciting. So before we begin, let me just remind you, if you like the show, please hit the like button. Share it. It's very important. We, we, we rely on our supporters to get this, the shows we do like this around. Um, make sure you subscribe and hit the bell icon when you do. And then the, the, the issues we discuss in the show, if, there's, if we refer to information that we tell you is available, you can just hit the little eye icon in the, scorner, the corner of the screen there above Jeremy's head and um, that'll give you the instructions about where to find that. Uh, one of the, we, we constantly refer to our weekly magazine, the Australian Alert Service, where we elaborate on the themes of the show because we can never do it justice in the time we have for the show. Um, and that's available for everyone. If you haven't had one before um, and you're interested, you can, you can contact us to get a free copy of that. Otherwise, you, there's information there about how you can subscribe to it and get it weekly. Um, also, Jeremy, before we begin, we have to explain something. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. We would like to thank our great supporter in Mildura, Louise Ackland, who Thanks. has sent us these mugs for the Citizens Report. Personalised, got my name on it, Jeremy's name on it. Um, Thanks, Louise. Thank you very much, Louise. We, we, uh, we love the contributions from our supporters. So this, this is rather unique. Uh, that reminded me, we do have a little bit of paraphernalia in this organisation. If people are interested, you can call in and get it. We have bumper stickers like this. We have little pin lapel pins like Jeremy yep. and I are wearing. Mm -hmm. If you're if you're um if you're interested in that, so we do have that sort of stuff available. If that's if that's your thing, you can throw us a few bucks and uh, help us out that way and get yourself some bumper stickers. And I think we're producing a few more bumper stickers on specific projects we promote, like the Iron Boomerang um, and the Bradfield scheme. So um, you can just get in touch with us and find out what we've got. All right, let's get into it, Jeremy. But before we get into the show proper, we have there's always a few things to update people on, right? So I want to go through it efficiently, but I have to say I'm going to, I'm going to preview for something for next week because and in coming weeks, um, but we don't have time for it today, and that's what's happened in Afghanistan, mm. which is just when are we going to learn our lesson, right? It's the it's the a terrible end to a twenty a terrible war, um, and everyone saw it, and. Jeremy and I have been in the Citizens Party long enough to remember when that war started. That's mm -hmm. when you start feeling old. Here's the we were there when the longest war in Australian history started, Jeremy, mm -hmm. and now we're there when it, when it ends. Terrible right? quagmire for no, no justified reason. Mm -hmm. And we've got the government, mm -hmm. on the one hand, doubling down and saying there wasn't, nothing was in vain, etc. We did good. It's, mm -hmm. And then the same government, and this is what I'm going to definitely be talking about next week, is still sticking to their immoral 
refugee policy, if those desperate people trying to clamber on that plane and even fell out of the sky in their desperation, if in their desperation those who worked with Australia couldn't do it any other way but came here by boat, we would lock them up. That's, that's on us. You'll never get me to see it any other way. It's immoral. And there's young people, young men in hotels here in Melbourne that have been locked in those hotels for two and three years, and that's after coming from the islands, right, where they've been locked up for indefinitely. This is, this is crazy. Anyway, that's, that's a preview for that. More importantly, on our campaigns, I just want to mention from the 22nd and 28th of August, our Queensland um, leader, Jan Pakalis, the state secretary up there, she's leading what's called the Rocky Road Tour, where they're going to take the Australia Post Bank campaign on the road up the Bruce Highway to Rockhampton and back. And they're going to try and cover towns on one side of the highway on the way up and towns on the other side of the highway on the way down. Right? So if you're, in that, if, you, if you're in that route, get in touch. You can get in touch with us if you want, to, if you want uh, Jan to come to your town, etc., and, and uh, talk to the locals there about the importance of an, of an Australia Post Bank. Um, and, and just as a sign of the impact we're having, Jeremy, this week, Jan got a call from a, a senator in the federal Senate who wanted to talk to her about this campaign, right? Just based on reading the literature, he called her up and said, what's, what's this about? And he was fully supportive. They can't ignore us any longer. No, no, they, they can't. All right. Um, the other thing to announce is that yesterday we put up an interview that I did um, this week with Beryl Taylor, who's one of the Sterling First victims. And I really urge people to watch that interview. It explains what happened in that case. We've covered a lot on our show recently and why we need justice for those victims in the form of compensation and, and a, an inquiry um, into the Sterling First scandal that includes ASIC. The victims are planning a protest at the state parliament in Western Australia in um, a few weeks, the 8th of September. And if you're in Western Australia and you followed this, and I think it's a Wednesday, we'll keep an eye open for the details. We'll make sure they're public. Go along to that protest. Help support them because they need media publicity, etc. Because we just, we just cannot let the government get away with sweeping this under the table. The essence is this. Um, a weak regulator is what the banks want. And this government does what the banks want. So even though this is a, particular, this is a case that's not directly about the banks, although there is some bank involvement, the government won't even act on a case like this because that, that would require strengthening the regulatory system for the whole country, and that's what they don't want to do. And we cannot let them get away with that. After, you know, the, the Royal Commission wasn't that long ago. Um, and then uh, just one other quick update before we get into the, the main story. In this week's alert service, we have an article, The Plot Thickens, Ousted ASIC Chair James Shipton Got in the Way of London's Banks. And this is... if it, um, I, I might have spent, we want to spend today's show on this subject, but we've had to bump it for, for another story. Um, it's really worth watch, uh, reading this. We now have a multitude of reasons why, after the Royal Commission, the new chair of ASIC, James Shipton, and his, and his deputy, Daniel Crennan, they actually appeared to try, be trying to clean up the system. And for that, because they're supposed to be allowed to act independently, Jeremy, mm. right, that's the system. No, no, they have been railroaded out. And the latest is... There's a thing that um, London's banks were able to operate in Australia without a licence. And it was under a system called equivalence relief, which is a technical thing basically meaning, oh, Britain's system is similar to Australia's system, similar language, similar rules, etc. They don't need to be vetted. 
essentially, right? Just let them come in. And James Shipton and Daniel Crennan stopped that. And after they were ousted, and we've, we've covered that in, in pre previous shows, you can go back and look at the details there on YouTube. After they were ousted, in May this year, Josh Frydenberg, in his budget speech, reinstated it. And when you're talking about the City of London, you're talking about the centre of global financial corruption. It is a bigger financial centre than Wall Street, um, and it, it really is where the, the most corrupt financial power is. And if James Shipton, as part, some, some of the things he was doing, got in the way of that as well, you can see why the government moved against him, right? And anyway, it's in that article. It's, it's really worth people reading. Okay, so now, Jeremy, um, let's get into the main stories. Number one, Australia's real economy is running out of time. And that's what we're going to talk about, the real economy, which is the part of the economy that most people don't even think about. They don't, they don't you know, they, it's not what you see, but it's the important bit. So if you, can, if you compare it to a car, it's what's in the guts of the engine under the hood, right? Not the cup holders and the, and the uh, keyless entry and the, and the Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth and all that, for, you know, and, and, the, and the, 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 um, the, the paint job and all that. Right? It's what actually makes it work, none of which, without which the rest is irrelevant. Um, we're covering this as a matter of urgency because last week we covered manufacturing in Australia, this, the issue of manufacturing, and we announced that there's a new inquiry up. Um, the inquiry is going to report on the 24th of November, I believe, but we need people to make submissions to this, and the submission deadline is the 10th of September, and that's not that far away. We want to do this story, we want you to... We want you to make a submission, as every ordinary citizen can make a submission to this, but also share it with people who you may know in the manufacturing area. If you know people involved in you know, those kind of independent engineering workshops, etc., share it with them. They would relate to what we're about to talk about, and they should make submissions, because um, otherwise a, a, an inquiry like this isn't going to get to the point. Right? They'll just dance, you know, they'll, they'll make it about some kind of... Uh, you know, sustainable energy or something, right? Rather yeah. than actually the meat, the, the, the meat and potatoes of how an economy actually works. And of course, we're encouraging people when you make a submission, say, look, we need a manufacturing revival, not some half, you know, hearted thing. And for that, we need a national development bank. Get this submission, get this inquiry to look at a national development bank, which can provide the capital that a lot of these businesses need. So, that, so, and if you want more details on that, look at last week's show. This week, we got contacted by a veteran TAFE college teacher. Um, and he was a teacher of, full, of, sorry, of tool making and advanced engineering technology, um, you know, computer-aided design and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and his name's Alan Baker, and I really appreciated Alan reaching out, and I had a long uh, talk to him. And Alan, in his day, was involved in writing the syllabus and handbooks used to teach students, right? But he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's in his 70s now, um, and... He called me, in, he contacted us in great alarm. And I want to read out his email. So I'll read it carefully, but you got, the, the email tells the story, right? And we can, you, you can see what the urgency is, why we're running out of time. Like always, I read the material you'll send me. I had to respond this time regarding manufacture. When I was working, I was involved in manufacture for all of my life. First of all, on the tools, and from my late 20s, teaching the skills at TAFE. If you're in Sydney, then you would have used, unknowingly, something that I have made, especially if you've ridden the T4 Eastern Suburbs line to Bondi Junction. The cost to re-equip with plant and equipment is prohibitively expensive. 
I have ex-students who have high-end shops, but it is the cost of power, energy, that is also killing off the desirability of buying Australian-made. I would, glad you put, I would gladly put you in contact with these guys so you can get it straight from the horse's mouth as to the struggles they face. We are talking very high tech and they can hold tolerance down to one micron, hmm. one thousandth of a millimetre on their CNC equipment. And that's pretty impressive, right? Yeah, yeah. that's com computer numerical control equipment. Uh, very high tech stuff. Yeah. And the people who run those machines have hmm. to be highly skilled. Oh, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, that, that's very, very fine. <laughs> one micron, that, that's incredible. One thousand. I know what a millimetre is, yeah, one thousand. Yeah, I, that's I know, incredible. Having, having worked on laves and having an engineering... Jer um, Jeremy's a mechanical engineer. Yeah. Um, in fact, last year, Jeremy and I went and visited one of our other engineering friends, Paul Jindra, who, has a, um, who proudly showed us a six-axis machine. Mm. And um, when I talked to Alan, he was telling me about one of his students has a nine-axis <laughs> machine. There's... there's more axes than... I wouldn't have thought that was possible when I was doing <laughs> university in the 1990s. <laughs> well, to me, it seems like there's more axes than there are um, dimensions in the universe. You know? But anyway, it's, these people, are, it's highly skilled stuff. I'll just continue with the email. Parts made in India use materials sourced from questionable sources and finished items can be purchased at a cheaper rate than the unmachined bars of steel. Also, it is next to impossible to be able to purchase all of the types and sizes of steel bars as well as the shapes. The once easily obtainable in-between sizes have now been removed and in some instances it means for a part to be machined from 16mm diameter material, the only size available is 20mm diameter, which immediately incurs a, a wastage of 4mm. Also, we no longer make specialist steels in this country and so our stainless varieties are more restricted. We no longer make non-ferrous materials and our brasses, bronzes, some aluminium alloys and other materials are now hard to find and our supply chain is broken. Now that's not the urgent bit yet. Mm. This, is, this, is the, this is the key bit. It saddens me a lot to see this happen. Plus, the elephant in the room is the loss of skills required to do this stuff. All of the people who are capable of this skill, level of skill are now all old. There is nobody under 50 who has what it takes to do this stuff. Just ask one of the guys I just spoke to, I just spoke of, sorry, who still treats me like God because of the level of skill I still possess. Please understand that before you can get manufacture back and running, this will not happen simply by building factories and tooling up with some modern machinery, then expect it to start producing. You need a skilled workforce, and neither side of the political divide want this to happen. They have desecrated the TAFE system right across Australia, and it is an osteoporotic skeleton of what it used to be. I know because I worked in it when it was good and watched it deteriorate over years because of interference by people who don't have a clue. Writing this has upset me a lot, but you have to know. I spoke to Alan and he elaborated um, on this, right? And he was giving me the example of, of former students who are now running manufacturing engineering businesses, right? And they can't get skilled labour. Um, one of these guys, these machines are clearly very expensive. He would prefer to lose a machine than lose a labourer, right? Lose a worker. He cannot afford to. The mm. workers are gold. So because they know how serious this is, what mm. the implications for the economy, he went to his local member of parliament, who was a local federal liberal member of parliament, but the member of parliament didn't care. Mm. And they didn't care because they don't get it, right? They don't actually understand how the economy actually works. So... Um, uh, 
This is the real, real economy that we're talking about. We often talk about the real economy. This is the real, real economy. Like I said, it's the guts of the engine of the economy, which most people never see and never think of. Um, if that part of this economy, Jeremy, can't get skilled labour because we aren't training it, what are we doing to ourselves? This is a policy of national suicide. I mean, we have had decades of a deliberate takedown. I mean, you look back to the post-war era. We used to make just about everything. You know, from the 1950s and 1960s, the rot started to set in somewhere in the 1970s, but we're still pretty good then. And then it really went downhill in the 1980s. And this has been a deliberate takedown of our national economy where we used to make just about everything. Fridges, washing machines, lawnmowers, cars. We don't even make cars anymore. And we uh, did and, and we did because we could. It's, mm. Even if you don't, it's important to be able to, but we yeah. can't. Now it's to get to the point where we can't. And, and the reason why is, is neoliberalism and radical environmentalism. Now, this is nuts. You know, the, the electricity price that, mm. that you mentioned there. Yeah. How can they produce anything with you know, wind and solar and all this expensive electricity? It's not going to happen. Uh, we have a completely anti-nuclear agenda, anti-coal, anti-anything that's productive, anti-dams, that hydroelectricity provided yeah. cheap electricity for Tasmania. So this is a completely ideological agenda, no science, and, and the, the training. You know, the TAFEs, we, we used to have high, highly skilled technical people. They, they just don't train them up anymore. And one of the things Alan told me is, <laughs> is, is having been there when it happened, yeah. When John Howard came along, yeah. he'd already seen the, you know, the takedown of manufacturing under Keating and these tariff cuts, etc. Mm. But when Howard came along, under Howard, they made courses at TAFE um, have to pay, for the, pay their own way. Mm. And suddenly the fees went right up. Mm -hmm. And people, blue-collar young men, right, mainly, but there would have been women in there as well, who... Um, could have afforded the old fees to, get, to learn the skills needed to become this new workforce, suddenly they can't afford it, right? And then, of course, a lot of other silly stuff started being taught at TAFE colleges uh, uh, as well as a substitute. I, I remember talking to Professor Lance Andersby and, and he used to joke about uh, classes for finger painting or something yeah, ra yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than real hard tech sciences and engineering. I mean, it's just, it's national suicide. Well, that's the part that people need to take on board. National suicide, the clock is ticking. Time is running out. So that's why this inquiry is so serious. We, we showed last week that all the, all the lip service the politicians paid a year ago when the pandemic first started, oh, we, you know, because supply chains were disrupted. Oh, see, we, should, we actually should have a manufacturing capacity in Australia. It's just that. It's lip service. They've got no com actual commitment to it at all. Um, but that's not necessarily true of everyone in Parliament. But despite the group think or whatever, there's individuals who will have a commitment to it. Um, but that's where we have to force them. And so, some, you know, they've put up this inquiry into manufacturing. Let's make sure it deals with these issues. And if you know someone in the sector and, and re retired people as well, if you're a retired engineer, you make a submission, please. What you do, um, we can put the, the, uh, the link up. Essentially, uh, we've got a press release on this that you can find. Uh, where it takes you to the link to the, to the parliamentary website. And you can just, a submission can be as simple as an email that you email in and say, this is who I am, this is what I think, right? And tell them they should be addressing this stuff. Tell them they should support a National Development Bank, right? We need to make sure these kind of inquiries work. And this is an excellent opportunity. And, and Robbie, that National Bank Development Bank is so crucial because 
under this zero net carbon, the global finance, they're denying our country yeah. the funds that we need to invest in manufacturing. We, we can't do it without our own finance. Well, that's right. If, you, if, 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 the, if the, the neoliberal ideologues say, oh, well, if it's legitimate, the market will fund it. Yeah. Well, then, this, then they say, but you need foreign investment. And then what you're referring to is the, the big foreign investors yeah. controlled by outfits like BlackRock, et cetera, saying, oh, no, we're not going to invest in you if you yeah. don't follow these certain rules. And the rules, and we'll elaborate on this more in a minute, but one of the reasons that we are very sceptical about the climate change stuff is because the, the, um, it targets the most productive part of the economy again. The things that make us work, it just targets that and has all these claims about, oh, we can, we can make up for it in these other ways. And it, they just don't stack up. Um, and anyway, so the, if you want a real economy, talk to the people who make it work, right? And that's what um, uh, we need to do. And that's why a development bank is so important. We can fund it ourselves. We've got everything here in Australia. And I think the next subject will demonstrate that um, anyway. So please make a submission, but let's move on. Uh, IPCC corruption, hype the problem, deny the solution. And Jeremy, I think this is actually quite scandalous what we're about to highlight, right? So um, in the last two weeks, you've written two articles. We're going to go through, through them both. Um, the first one was about the IPCC report. Now, just um, how, many, how long is it again? 4,000... Oh, oh, the, the report, uh, 3,949 pages. <laughs> 3,949 page report. Now, bear that in, we'll come back to that in a minute. This is a huge report, right? And the head... We want to contrast the headlines to actually some of the content, because that's actually quite important. So the headline was, all around the world, code red for humanity. Mm. That was the headline, right? But when you look at the report, there's actually quite a gulf to some key statements in there. But before we get to the report itself, let's look at, um, uh, well, I want to read one, one of the statements in the report and then, and then we can quote some people. So the report states, um, this is a quote, unlike in previous assessments, climate models are not considered a line of evidence in their own right in the IPC 66 assessment report, or this report. So for the, what they're saying is for the first time, Climate models are not presented as evidence. And that's quite a statement because that's what we've been debating um, all these years. And it relates to this. There's been an acknowledgement, Jeremy, that climate models have been running too hot, which even the head of the NASA Goddard Center, his mm -hmm. name is Gavin Schmidt, has conceded. What did Schmidt say? I uh, looked at this in a, an article in the peer-reviewed journal Science. And he was quoted as saying, you end up with numbers for even the near term that are insanely scary and wrong. Uh, so this is pretty wild. He's actually one of the top scientists who's in the past been quite alarmist on this global warming. And he's admitting that these models are just, just simply fraud. Uh, you know, that's, that's scandalous. Because, because the hype has been mm. driven by the models that he's saying were wrong. Yeah, that's the, that's contrast the hype with the content, right? The hype that you that makes Greta Thunberg think she doesn't have a future, yeah. right? You've taken my childhood. That that makes the little the little kids go to the street and think the world's going to end in eleven years. It's based on that, yeah. and and he's said that. So how let's get a little bit specific here, but we don't want to lose the audience. <laughs> uh, but let's try. So how were the models out out of step with records of past climate? 
Okay, so going, going back to that uh, article from Science, and that, that article was, was printed on the 27th of July uh, this year. Uh, so in terms of the, the past climate, I'll just read out the quote from it. The models were also out of step with the records of past climate. For example, scientists used the new model from the National Centre of Atmospheric Research to simulate the coldest point of the most recent ice age 20,000 years ago. Extensive paleoclimate records suggest Earth cooled nearly six degrees compared with pre-industrial times. But the model, fed with low ice age carbon dioxide levels, had temperatures plummeting nearly twice that much, suggesting that it was far too sensitive to the ups and downs of carbon dioxide. That is clearly outside the range of what the geological data indicate, says Jessica Turney, a paleoclimatologist at the University of Arizona. So let me get this straight. Tell me if I'm wrong. So you go, you go back 20,000 years to that ice age and their graph that, that these models have used have the, have the, uh, the, the, the lowest temperature point down here, mm -hmm. twice as low as it actually got to. Yeah. And if it's down here, that means the temperature up here, forward in time, and the rise looks a lot more dramatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the, the models, it's garbage in, garbage out. So yeah. what, what they do is they make all these assumptions about carbon dioxide, but there's so many variables in climate. The cloud cover is one of the most important things, and models would find it very, very difficult to mm. predict that because, obviously, if you're going to get more warming, more evaporation, more clouds, and then the clouds reflect more yeah. the energy out into space, that's one of the big factors. Then there's... Because when, sorry, when yeah. the... This is me, the layman, yeah. right? Yeah. When when we see clouds from the below yeah. and they look grey, yeah. when you see them from the top, they're not grey. Oh, well, you know, when you're flying in an airplane, <laughs> they're always white. They're too bright. Shut the shut the <laughs> shut the blind then. And uh, remember, in those days when we were allowed to fly, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it is bright up there above the clouds, and that sends that energy out into outer space. Uh, and, and then the the cosmic factor is enormous. The 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 cosmic rays from the sun. Uh, right. The solar spot cycles, there's so many factors, and they're just looking at one thing, carbon dioxide. Is As you can tell, um, <laughs> uh, Jeremy can, Jeremy can uh, talk about this for a long time. So let, let, me just, let me just hurry along for the sake of time. You highlighted this one thing I wanted you to elaborate on. The, this, despite everything we're talking about, the IPCC report stated it's now unequivocal mm -hmm. that humans are warming the planet. But in quantifying that, <laughs> they gave themselves a huge range... Mar a huge margin of error, right? No, that's for sure. Uh, this, this is uh, the, out of, straight out of the IPCC report. It says the likely, in, in italics, the likely range of total human-caused global surface temperature increase from 1850-1900 to 2010-2019 is 0.8 degrees Celsius to 1.3 degrees Celsius with a best estimate of 1.07 degrees Celsius. Uh, really? So, the, so the, the range is half a degree. <laughs> yeah, and, and on, even that's junk science. On something that's very hard to measure anyway. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, but we're going to get into, um, in, into something that uh, I, think, I think the real, we could have a debate over that, right? Mm. But the real scandal is what comes next. Um, I, I'm going to, I suggest people, you know, get the alert service and read Jeremy's article. 
In those, how many pages? 3,949 pages, where the headline is, this is the end of the world. And what's, the, um, what's their prescription? What's, as usual, the, to, to, to combat this? What's their zero, only prescription? Zero net carbon. Zero net carbon, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's always the same message. What, Jeremy, is one of the best baseload, rel- therefore reliable technologies for energy that doesn't emit carbon? Nuclear, dioxide? nuclear power. What, what does the, this very, very large IPCC report say about nuclear power. In 3,949 pages, there is only one reference to nuclear power, and it was a silly reference. It was making out that, oh, because we've got global warming in future, uh, the river waters are going to be warmer, and those warmer waters in the rivers, uh, that's going to make it harder for coal and nuclear power plants for their cooling activities. (laughs) What? It's just a nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Okay. (laughs) And then it gets even worse. So at the end of the year, in November, they're going to have the, are these annual, these COP conferences or biannual or something? The COP26, the Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, in Scotland in November, COP26. What are they doing at that conference regarding nuclear power? Zero, nothing. Uh, The... World Nuclear Association had on its website a letter that was written to the IPCC COP conference and, and saying, well, what's going on? You know, you, this is the, the power, if you really want zero emissions, this is the power you need. And every single uh, nuclear uh, application was denied. No, you can't and, have it, you can't have it. And this is just to sort of establish information pavilions at the event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is called the green zone. Yeah. And, you know, people hand out flyers and have their little glossy presentations. and You could you know, wander through there looking at, alt- yeah. at solutions to yeah, climate yeah. change. And all the applications for nuclear power were, were just denied. All right, now let's, let's emphasise how ridiculous that is by talking about um, there's been quite a breakthrough, and so we want to end on a positive note here. Uh, there's different nuclear technologies, uh, Jeremy, of course, and some are better than others. But one of those, and probably... The single most interesting one outside of something fantastic like uh, uh, fusion eventually is thorium. And there's just there's a breakthrough underway in China right now. Tell us what's happening. They've just announced, it was actually a, a report, there's very, very little media coverage on it, but there, there was a report um, in the Chinese media that they've about to this month uh, complete a test uh, prototype thorium molten salt reactor and they're scheduled to do tests on this recently completed reactor next month in September. Uh, now this is called a, uh, a, a molten salt reactor which means that you, you can't have a meltdown because it's a completely new technology. It, yeah. it doesn't rely on water to cool the, the, the nuclear reactor uh, so, so you, you don't have to have you know, a river or, a, you know, yeah. ocean water or, or cooling towers they often have. So the IPCC report's already redundant? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so China's planning to build these in deserts way out inland. Yeah. Uh, they're modular, uh, and this is a prototype, so it's only a tiny one, but they're planning to build modular reactors around about um, 100 megawatts, whereas normally a uh, you know, baseload power station is around about 1,000 yeah. megawatts, so it's about yeah. one-tenth the size. It's still pretty big, but not... Not massive. Big in and power, but how big in size? 
oh, tiny, just a few metres. Uh, you know, the reactor's just a few metres. Uh, so uh, that, that's going to be really interesting because um, they, they could build modules as the population grows and as the economy goes, they could put a 100 megawatt one in and then you know, the next year to put another 100 megawatt in and they can put them anywhere they like and expand them as they go. And uh, China's looking at uh, selling those to other countries that are in the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's, the, it's really going to transform the world. The hundred megawatts in your article, you said that can power about a hundred thousand homes, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I want to. So Jeremy writes this stuff, and um, I read it, and I'm the layman, and you, you want to get a sort of a comparison, and we have a we have a picture in here, but we're going to we'll show the video. The Victorian government has this thing called Victorian Big Battery, and it's 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 going along with the whole um, Tesla battery hype. We won't even talk about what if we have their if we have their view of a world with renewable energy, how much uh, mineral production would go into manufacturing all these batteries, which is a real challenge in its own right. But we won't even talk about that. But we just want to compare the size. So the the modular reaction reactor that Jeremy's talking about is about two and a half by three meters. Mm-hmm. Um, look at this video, and as it zooms in, this is this uh, the big battery is is made up of two hundred and ten of these Tesla mega packs. So that's one of these white buildings, right? And that you can that's roughly the same size as what Jeremy's just talked about, but it's a battery. One of them started burning the other week yeah. in Victoria. But anyway, enough of that. Um, one of them, Jeremy, produces three megawatts, <laughs> right? And all up, this is a, uh, get me the technical details again. It's oh, a, the, they're all up, the, the total uh, you know, site is, site, is yeah. three, 300 megawatts or 450 megawatt hours. Now, the megawatt hours is the actual storage of the amount of energy, yeah. and the megawatts is the, the output that it puts yeah. out. Yeah. So the Victorian government says on its own website that at its peak, this big battery installation will power a million homes, that sounds good, for half an hour. <laughs> Whereas what you're talking about will power, that's the size of one of those modules, just one, mm-hmm will power 100,000 homes for how long? Constantly. Constantly. Doesn't yeah. run out. Yep. Right? That's the difference here. And so, you, and, and the, then the other benefit, if, I, I just want to make sure we didn't miss that, um, there's lots of different scares associated with nuclear power, but one of those is proliferation. Mm. One of the real selling points of thorium is there can be no, you cannot use these to build nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And, and they've made that point in the article, and it's well known. Thorium is is so abundant, you know, compared with uranium, and you can use the entire lot of the thorium yeah. rather than a small percentage of the uranium. And yeah, sure, yeah, no nuclear weapons. And like with uranium, where mm. Australia pretty much has the the lion's share of the world's resources, mm. supply of it, and we should use it, um, we've got lots of thorium as well. Exactly right, one of the world's biggest suppliers. Yep. Um, and then I, we just have to end on this. This to to me in this whole article you wrote, probably the single most. Um, uh, optimistic part was uh, this is a breakthrough that China's doing. They're actually collaborating on this, including with the countries that are kind of adversaries with them at the moment. Mm. They've been collaborating with the United States even and Australia, Mm -hmm. and our ANSTO has participated in this project. Dr. Adrian Patterson, uh, who was the the head of ANSTO, he was uh, very influential in getting this dialogue going with China and and working for the new, new, the next generation nuclear reactors, uh, and 
it's on the ANSTE website to this day uh, of that deal, the memorandum of understanding. But I don't know for sure what's going to happen now, given the, the bad China relations. And, and that's just a shame because we, we, we should be working. We should be working at these for win-win sort of opportunities. This kind of collaboration is what has been targeted by those Wolverines in Parliament we talk mm. about to break up, mm. right? A collaboration on something this positive and with this enormous potential for the world, um, they will target it. They, 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 like in America, they would they accuse the kind of scientific exchange as, oh, these people are spies, mm. right? And they break it up. It's terrible. Um, but anyway, if you want, if, if, if you want to believe that the world's about to come to an end and you do not want the best form of reliable power. Why is it better than hydro? Because hydro has to be built in position. You've got to have the river first. These can be built anywhere, right? This is what we should be pursuing. We could have them everywhere because we're not, we're not shills for the coal, coal sector. <laughs> we don't care about coal companies, right? We should have gone um, with this great technology and moved on to other things. So anyway, let's, don't let the government get away with suppressing this stuff, right? See through, you'll know how genuine they are about their climate change concerns if they're, if they're actually going to pursue this kind of thing. And we can cite a few people. Um, there's a lot of well-known, really concerned environmentalists mm -hmm. like James Lovelock. Who's, Michael Schellenberger as well. Michael Schellenberger, who yeah. have come out in recent years as emphatic advocates for nuclear power, mm -hmm. right? And we should be pursuing it. Uh, anyway, Jeremy, before the producer gives us dirty looks because we've gone over time, <laughs> thank you very, very much for joining us. That was great. And thanks to the viewer for tuning in. And like I said, the urgency this week is make a submission to the manufacturing inquiry and share this with, if with anyone you know who might be in the sector and, and ask them to do it as well. And if they want to talk to us, get it, put us in touch with them. We'll, we'll happily talk to them. And, yeah, tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report.